you know, King himself says that fiction is truth wrapped in a lie. And, you know, that, that to me is the most, uh, interesting way to kind of process a lot of those difficult truths that, that are out there. You know, I, I have a very similar experience with my book strings, which was the first novel that I had published by, it was published by a small press, very small press. Um, but it was my first actual like novel publication. And, uh, that book is unlike anything I've ever written because of, of its nihilism. Um, that, that word strikes a chord with me because I tend to avoid that myself in my work. I always try to put a little glimmer of hope in there (laughs) and, uh, pet cemetery. I think I might've been on some subconscious level channeling that because I've read that book about 20 times, maybe more. And especially throughout my teenage years, just trying to understand grief and grapple with it because I had never lost anybody close to me before. And I still have been very lucky that way. I still have both my parents. I still have my brother. I still have, uh, you know, my kids, my husband, everybody close to me. And um, I haven't experienced that level of grief that is expressed in Pet Cemetery, and I think I was trying to expose myself to it in some way, like open myself up to it. This is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. I'm Jason Blair. That's Allison Dixon, who's been writing novels and short stories for more than 15 years, and who is the host of the Ding Dong Darkness Time podcast. When Allison isn't writing, she's usually spending her time focused on thrillers, psychological suspense stories, true crime shows, and interestingly, crocheting something cute or creepy. Allison is the author of several well reviewed, independently published novels as well as a debut thriller, The Other Miss Miller. That book was picked up by Putnam in the United States and other publishers across the globe, and it was published in 2019. Some of the other writing she has done includes the horror thriller Strings, a chilling tale of entrapment and greed that makes you question free will as much as a Calvinist, and the dystopian science fiction novel The Last Supper. Allison says the best thing about being a writer is being able to work in her pajamas. Allison was inspired by Gillian Flynn, the screenwriter, producer, and author of thriller and mystery novels, including Gone Girl, a psychological thriller about whether a character named Nick Dunn and whether he's responsible for the death of his wife, Amy. Trust me, the book is more twisted, complex, and suspenseful than the great movie, What Allison learned from Jillian's writing is that there was a space for realistic and suspenseful fiction writing. She was also inspired by others like Margaret Atwood, the author of The Handmaid's Tale. Allison said that book put her in, quote, a state of awe. She also cites Cormac McCarthy, the American novelist who died this year, and who is the master of writing graphic novels, plays, and screenplays that Allison says shows us the power of brevity, a quality that I haven't quite mastered. 
Allison's weekly podcast is described as one that is driven by her fascination with the weird, morbid, and macabre. But it's not just science fiction like Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, but also real-life historical creepsters like the troubled Pinkerton Detective Agency in Amway, tragedies like the car crash death of the 1950s and 1960s sex symbol Playboy Playmate, actress, pianist, and violinist Jane Mansfield, and doomsday religious cults and guru cults. She has an interesting set of friends, colleagues, authors, and others who join her on the podcast. Allison also works as a writing instructor for the Kettering, Ohio Rosewood Art Center, where she helps young people with writing. Allison has also worked in sales, merchandising, and customer service. For someone rooted in thrillers from the dark side, Allison is a kind and compassionate person who helps listeners on her podcast see the life lessons that we find in dark arts, which are often easier to process than what's in front of our faces in real life. Today, we're going to talk about all of those topics and explore our fascination with darkness. But one thing I can guarantee is you're going to find this conversation a light brighter than you imagine. Allison, I just wanted to thank you for joining. You know, one of the, I don't know, I, I don't think I've ever told you this, but one of the ways that I came across your podcast was I had actually, you know, I had seen your name, I had interacted with you online through our probably shared love of the Prosecutor's Podcast, but someone started dropping in the chat, ding-dong darkness time, exclamation point, over and over again. (laughs) And I was like, what in the world is this crazy person who's having a ding-dong darkness seizure talking about? (laughs) So so I found out really quickly that it wasn't a seizure. (laughs) Are you sure? Are you absolutely sure? Good point. I'm not not entirely sure. But at least it led me to your podcast and – You know, I I thought it was really interesting on a number of levels. And I think one thing really stuck out to me is that, you know, there are a lot of like, let's say, true crime podcasts or horror focused podcasts or, you know, just pick the topic or like writing focused ones. But I felt like yours was really, even though it dealt with dark topics, what it really was about was society and culture And I thought it was really powerful the way that you brought together all these different topics that I would have never guessed had this thread that connected them. And, and, and I think that's what, one of the things I just really enjoyed. Well, I thank you very much. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad it, ma- it resonates with somebody because I don't know <laughs> if, if it makes sense to anybody, but me a lot of the time, I, uh, I really wanted to have a a podcast. That's the one thing I knew I really wanted to do. The problem is, is it mirrors a lot of the problems I've had in real life is when I went off to college, always had a very difficult time choosing a major. I I majored in multiple different things, English and and journalism. And then I swapped over to, um, gosh, psychology. And I thought about doing nursing and physical therapy and you know, so, so many different 
things that I had interest in. And, and it kind of mirrors with the podcast. I like too many things. I can never just choose to do one thing. At first I thought, oh, I could do true crime. And then I thought, yeah, that's a little too. Um, everybody's doing true crime right now. True crime is so hot right now. And it requires a level of discipline that uh, frankly, I don't know that I have or want to have. So <laughs> I thought, you know, take my love of different types of literature, take my love of history, my love of food, my love of people and, you know, different types of uh, all types of different subjects and try to find a common thread that runs through it all. And it ends up being that it's kind of all a little bit dark. It's all kind of all a little bit weird. Um, it's a little off the beaten track. It's not bright and sunny and, and uh, super happy all the time. But I myself tend to be pretty happy most of the time. I'm a very... I usually am a pretty more of an elevated move than, than a mood than a downbeat mood. And so I said, well, let's see if we could put a good mood with all this darkness. And my son yeah, came man. up with the name for the show and oh, I ran with it. <laughs> so it's funny you say it is definitely, it touches on dark topics, but I don't find it actually dark because there's these moments of insight that are like aha moments that I think are um, super powerful. And it, and what you were saying just totally resonates with me because it was quite funny. So, you know, when <laughs> I initially, and it, it's like what you've done is you've created your own independent study. And I feel, <laughs> I feel very much the same way, but I remember, uh, I don't know, a couple months in, I had said, I don't know what this podcast is. Um, on. Mm-hmm. one of my friends, who I was emailing, or not emailing, texting about it. She said, oh, that's really easy. You really like to talk to interesting people. <laughs> and I'm like, right. Yup. <laughs> you yes. Me. Because, <laughs> you know, people are like, is this a true crime podcast? Is this a psychology podcast? Is this a blah, blah? This is a, anything I'm interested in. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's exactly right. It's your own playground. And that's the beauty of this medium, though. And 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 you can sort of make your own world. You can make your own fun. You can make your own platform. And that's the thread I do love seeing running through yours. You absolutely do talk to some really interesting people about really interesting things. And that's fantastic. I am terrified to talk to people a lot of the times, like on my show. So I, a lot of people I have on my show are friends or people I already know because I am terrified of making the cold call of, will you come on my show to talk to me? Uh, that's why I'm not a journalist. <laughs> like that's, that's about 90% of the job. Will you call this person and talk to them? You just have to get past the nose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it's really it's really interesting because it's funny. So I, I as a journalist, the thing that I hated the most was the man on the street interview. You know, yes. happen or parade, and you just have to like take the chance to do it. And I always found those remarkably um difficult. The world of email has made it a lot easier for me. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the ones where you do interview and you interview with people, you know, I, I think those are really interesting hearing the back and forth and hearing the conversation. <laughs> so if you need like a booking agent to take the hit, if they say no, I'm, I'm oh. always available. Well, <laughs> Hey, all right. You know, I'm going to take you up on that. <laughs> um, so I, the, uh, another piece of it, and I already told you, uh, I think recently about how much I enjoyed your pet cemetery. 
episode. Oh, thank I, you. I love that episode. I love that book too for on so many levels. But it also it just it, it reminds me of one other thing that I think stands out about your podcast is like as you guys are walking through that and you're walking through different stories, you're actually telling really important lessons about us as people. And that part I think is super powerful. Well, thank you. That that's definitely what I like to get out of Stephen King's work. Well, really any author, I I think, but I think it's a a subtle and subversive way to get people to consider things beyond the fright level. Mm-hmm. You know, there you know, when you say horror fiction uh to somebody, um, nine times out of 10, you're probably going to get a negative reaction of some kind. They're going to say, oh, I'm not into scary. I don't, I don't like it. Uh, Brett from the prosecutors, you know, he's often said that they lose 10% of their listenership during the month of October because they like to have some slightly spooky topics on their show during that month. And so there is just an immediate off switch. And so I think being able to show people the humanistic side of these stories is so important and maybe it will get people to possibly examine horror as more than just a spectacle. Um, yeah. And and King is particularly good at that because I think he just is such a humanistic person that I think that's just what he ends up uh, glomming onto as well when he's writing. And, and, and it's n- never more evident, I think in a book of his than pet cemetery or the shining. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you can really get a sense of King's demons and the what things that mm-hmm. he's wrestled with throughout his life through the lens of those stories, I think. But yeah, Pet Cemetery just hits more on a deep, visceral, cosmic horror level as well. And, and so I, it's a total package. Oh, absolutely. And you can see, you know, if you were to read a biography of Stephen King, you could follow sort of like from his childhood on. Like, it was no coincidence to me when he came out at came out that's wrong when he said he was sober but the yeah. next book was misery i was like okay this makes sense <laughs> yes it totally makes sense yes right? and and really i mean that book uh i yeah for for the um people who haven't heard my show i, I think i did a, a what about eight or ten episodes on stephen king's books and yeah. i'm probably gonna do another eight or ten at some point down the road because i um celebrate the man's entire catalog um, but, uh, but the, um, you know, you mentioned misery. Yes, yes, yes. And, okay. The know, misery. It's a book about, you know, a- addiction. Yeah, yeah. Really about I mean, addiction. You yeah. Know, you know, it's funny. I had read it before I had, I think really like my addiction had really opened up. And one of the interesting things about it for me is, you know, it's sitting on my shelf in the other room. It was actually a reference point for me during my sobriety because I finally got the metaphor, right? I got the metaphor, you know, there were different moments in my, in my addiction where I was like, okay. Like as I was getting to the point where like I've hit rock bottom and I'm quit. And like the last thing that was in my way, the last barrier in my way was my fear that if I got sober, I wouldn't be able to write anymore. And that was frightening to me. And then, yes, and then in just looking at King's story of being us being trapped like that mm-hmm. and being controlled, it was just very instructive on my end. And, 
you know, like I think of his other work, you know, like the first horror movie I ever saw was like Firestarter, which was about the young girl. I think it was, it, it was the young girl who, who's, and I was totally hooked by the book when I read it, but it was the young girl who's uh, had telekinesis or, or, um, or the ability to start fires with her mind. Fire. Right. Yeah, you know, yeah. Her parents were the ones who had telekinesis. Yes. Cause they were all part of like a government experiment or something. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I read Christine and I read oh. Carrie. And- Christine is so good. I, I think that's one of the more unsung stories of his. People look at that as a as more of a pulpy horror story because it's like a haunted car. Yeah. Um, but the way that it deals with social uh, issues and and the and the whole aspect of of the dynamic of Arnie who becomes just consumed by this thing that he finds meaning in it again i i mean i i feel like again i'm going toward the addiction uh metaphors with him but, well it makes yeah. sense because that's yeah. a whole early career where he was yeah he was struggling with that kind of stuff it's kind of like when eminem came up with his first album i'm not afraid afterwards like it was very much tied to to that and that being yeah. central and yeah. I mean, to your point about Christine, like, I mean, how many times in our real lives, it's horror, but do we become obsessed with things and make them so much the center of our life that they create? We see that in relationships. We see that with parents and their children. We yes. see all sorts of, you know, it's a metaphor for something very real. I think of obsession uh, in a lot of ways too. And, and really we kind of blind ourselves to it. We get really we stick our heads deep into things and, and uh, don't pull them out. And so I often, you know, feel like it is like sticking your head into a cement mixer, you know, just, just getting on, uh, getting, you know, all life in general often feels that way to me and, and trying to make sense of that and kind of slow that rotation down and, and examine the pebbles up close instead of just feeling like, ah. And so I think King just managed to manages to narrow our focus and, and to some very, particular human struggles and we can like pick them apart and find places that we can relate. I mean, I, I completely get it too with the, the sobriety thing. Uh, you know, I, I was pushed or really dragged kicking and screaming into sobriety recently, um, for health reasons Mm -hmm. that are, you know, way too complex to even begin to talk about here, but, but it has forced me to really confront the ways that I was using substance and the way the substance controlled me, especially, you know, alcohol in particular. Uh, And thank you. I mean, I, I, it was just one of those things where it's like, well, I could keep doing this or I could really just die in the next year if I just keep doing this and I don't want to die. I, it's, it's funny. My, my, you know, my, reason for drinking has always been to just turn the volume down in my brain. That's my reason for any substance. Just like, can we please just be quiet up in there? Um, And now I have to find other ways for it to be quiet up in there. Yeah. Um, And it's a tough, it's a tough thing to, I, I, and I think this is true of all of our habits to varying degrees. Yeah. We are, it's, it's hard to let go of the things that, and I think a lot of people don't understand this about addiction, but it's hard to let go of the things that make us feel safe. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And you do take a, a measure of safety in it. When when COVID was going on at it, you know, the or the lockdowns or or a lot of the restrictions were going on and we really weren't sure what was around the next corner. Oh yeah, vodka was my bestie. 
And, you know, I, I really sidled up to it quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) and, uh, you know, and I've been a a casual drinker for most of my adult life, you know, apart from when I was pregnant with my kids, but, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, well, I'll tell you something. I, I think I've maybe told one person, you know, I've been sober for 20 plus years. Yeah. And during That's COVID, great. Yeah, it's it's been a blessing. I'm I'm shocked every day. I'm shocked. Not not just that I'm sober, but that it's been a blessing. I'm shocked by that part because it doesn't it doesn't Right. <laughs> but the uh but during COVID was the first time I literally went to the ABC store, bought a bunch of liquor, ended up throwing it down the right in the kitchen sink. Yeah. And that was like the first time I mean, it brought COVID and the isolation Mm -hmm. and the fear of what was coming. I used to joke that, like, the only way I would use again is if I was on my deathbed. And I must have felt like I was on my deathbed on 2020 because that shocked me. That scared me. That, I mean, that, yeah, I I wouldn't, (laughs) I wouldn't even throw the bottles in our building trash can. I took it to another because I was like, I don't even want to be near. Right. Because there is that point where it's like, oh, I would dig that out of that trash can. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, yeah. And and yeah, so life kind of tests us on a regular basis. And you know, sometimes, yeah, when we have to give up those creature comforts because they're killing us, uh, <laughs> or our relationships, or whatever, in some way. And then you step back and you're like, wow, I haven't been hungover this week. That's kind of cool. I can actually get up and feel good. Or you start to just realize that man, I was really dumb and I was losing my memory of things. Yeah. I was the other part of it. You know, I'm like, I, I in that mirror one day and you're like, Oh my God, that's the pretty little boy that went away. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and, it, and maybe that's why I've probably been into Stephen King all along in some way. Cause I can, uh, I can say that, you know, I mean it, I have a lot of addiction or, you know, alcoholism and stuff throughout my family and, and uh, I think that's another thing that, you know, looking at them as cautionary tales was somehow harder. It's, but somehow it makes more sense when I read it in the, t- in the context of fiction. Stephen King would be so happy if he was, if he knew <laughs> slow road to sobriety. Yeah. My, my mother's cautionary tales were not enough. Sorry, mom. Um, <laughs> it was from your mom. <laughs> that never works. Yeah. I, um, you know, it's, it's funny too, because, you know, I'm just thinking about horror writing or uh, writing in general, but particularly horror writing, because it's often metaphors and allegories and all sorts of other things. It's a way to exactly what you said before, communicate the way it was for you communicate a message to us that we may not be able to take head on yes i i've always thought that the best writers of horror and sci-fi and things like that are actually really good psychologists before yes. they're even really good writers absolutely absolutely i i would say you know, that's the what that's the major I went the farthest in with college. Uh, I bill myself as a three times co- three time college dropout. Nice. Um, but that was my longest major and my my deepest love. And and to this day, I think that that's still what I consider where I lean. Um, and and the you know in tor- in terms of like career interest, yeah. but uh, but being a writer allowed me to explore that realm in a different way. All I do is analyze people when I'm sitting in front of a, a manuscript. It, mm-hmm. Every single thing I'm doing is through like an analytical 
you know, what would this character do given their particular proclivities and, and other quirks versus this character and their particular ways of thinking. And it's just constantly thinking about people. So almost being like an FBI profile, you have to get. Yeah. Yeah, I got to do, I get to do it without having to do all the real work that the The, the reports (laughs) and the. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I'm I'm sitting across a giant bookshelf and there's literally three copies of the stand on it, like anniversary oh. edition, fill in the blank. Yes. But, you know, one of the things about those books you talked about, how like they really spoke to you. I feel like I learned a lot from them, like multiple lessons, right? So I talked about Firestarter in the beginning mm-hmm. and, I, you know, like I learned the very obvious things. Okay, possibly the government does these wacky things with people. Let me let me figure <laughs> that out. But I also learned like what a what it felt for like a seven year old girl to feel abandoned. Like yes. I have wonderful parents, and I never I never could have imagined what that felt with like. Or you know, if you jump to something like the stand, and all of its many stories are about family and survival, and all mm-hmm. and also like spooky government stuff. But all of his books and all of his books, I've learned important tactical and big picture lessons. Like I don't know if I would have been the kid who would have never been the bully mm-hmm. if I hadn't read Carrie. Right? right. I also would not have known that women had menstrual cycles. <laughs> but <laughs> that was honestly, um, I I relate to that very much. I honestly think watching Carrie was the first time I learned not just about periods, but also tampons. Yes. Because I I had to ask my mom, why do they keep saying plug it up? I was like seven, maybe yeah. eight years old watching this thing. And so I was a few years before that whole uh, thing became relevant to me. And, uh, and my mom was just like, never mind. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that later. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that movie was, I could, yeah, I relate to that when it's you said that. Visceral, it's a visceral scene. And like, I feel like I picked up so many, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because that I picked up like how embarrassing that might be for a oh, girl or yes. other things like that. So I, I, in so many ways, like, I think a lot of the qualities that I, I, I do learn from nonfiction. I totally learn from nonfiction, but I think it's it's hard to, it's hard for me to even imagine how many lessons in life I've actually picked up from fictional stories. I think you would have to read some really crazy memoirs from people to get close to some of the human experience that you can really take in through fiction. Yeah. And it's um, hard to be authentic in a memoir. That's it a- really is. It really is. I've often pondered how I would tackle writing my own and I don't think I could do it. I don't, I don't like talking. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. I'm sitting here talking about myself a lot, but in the sense of like, and uh, I like talking about myself That's because I lure you in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I like it in the greater context. I, I like to insert myself into the context of a lot of things. But but in the sense of like, um, you know, if people ask me, um, you know, questions about my work or questions about my process, I, I will absolutely talk about it. But I will admit that that's a harder topic for me to find the vocabulary for compared to, mm. you know, reading somebody else's interpretation and then going, oh, okay, yeah, I can, I can, apply myself to that. And so it's, it's, 
Um, so when it's comes to like writing memoir, that makes me feel like, yeah, I probably would have to either embellish it in some way or just not do it because I don't think I'd be satisfied with what my life looks like strictly on paper. And so fiction just allows us to kind of just puff it up just a little bit for it's sort of like the, the Mary Poppins effect, you know, you just give it that spoonful of sugar and it just makes that medicine go down and, and that's, uh, or Stephen King. Cognitive dissonance, right? Like, yeah, it's me, but it's not really me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, King himself says that fiction is truth wrapped in a lie. And, you know, that, that to me is the most, uh, interesting way to kind of process a lot of those difficult truths that, um, that are out there. So, well, let me take you back to Pet Cemetery for the, and you know, could you just one of the things that I'm just wondering about that I heard for the first time on your podcast, and you also solved the mystery of why it's spelled with an S instead of a C for me because I didn't know that, but um, (laughs) (laughs) I was always baffled by that. But um, but one of the things that you said, you know, you mentioned that King point about uh, truth wrapped in a lie Mm -hmm. but i guess sometimes even the lie is too much like you mentioned in the podcast that pink king had stuffed it in a drawer yes and and didn't he said something along the lines we didn't know it was nihilism and he didn't know where it came from you know what what are the what do you learn as a writer both from the content and the process of that book Mm. you know i i have a very similar experience with my book strings, which um, was the first novel that I had published by, it was published by a small press, very small press. Um, But it was my first actual like novel publication. And uh, that book is unlike anything I've ever written because of, of its nihilism. Um, That, that word strikes a chord with me because I tend to avoid that myself in my work, I always try to put a little gl- glimmer of hope in there. <laughs> mm. And uh, it's Pet Cemetery. I think I might have been on some subconscious level channeling that because I've read that book about 20 times, <laughs> maybe more. And um, especially throughout my teenage years, just trying to understand grief and grapple with it because I had never lost anybody close to me before. And I still have been very lucky that way. I still have both my parents. I still have my brother. I still have, uh, you know, my kids, my husband, everybody close to me. And um, I haven't experienced that level of grief that is expressed in Pet Cemetery. And I think I was trying to expose myself to it in some way, like open myself up to it. That and Mm -hmm. and. If I had to correct me if I'm wrong, as I recall, like in Pet Cemetery, it was a doctor somewhere out in the Midwest, right? That um, moves to Maine? Yes, from Chicago to Maine. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he and his family move, right? And I remember in the beginning of it, like there were all these weird things happening. The one that I remember was the bee sting, but maybe there was a fall of with one of the kids. Yes, the little girl. She fell off the swing and we, scraped her knee, I think. And it was all happening like in one direction in the yard, right? Yeah. And then mm-hmm. there was, I, I remember like very vividly this walk from the house. There was like a path that led to the pet cemetery. Yes. And yes. You, do you want to take it from there? 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that first walk that they did to the pet cemetery was really just in one of sort of innocent discovery. They had seen the path going into the woods. And that's the the kind of the one that kind of blows the cold breeze on the back of your neck when they first discover it, because the first question that entered my 12 year old mind when I first read this book and has entered it every time I've read that book ever since is who is coming to maintain that. It's never mentioned. I mean, they might say kids from the neighborhood, but this is a rural road out in the middle of the country and it's never even mentioned any other time throughout the book that people are coming and maintaining this. It just seems like a path that has always been there that yeah. is just appears. And that immediately puts you on guard uh, that you're just going down this perfectly manicured path into the woods. And then you end up in this place where it is very mystical in nature with these concentric circles and these crudely shaped monuments to these departed pets and, you know, written by these children mostly and then, of course, on the edge of that, they notice the giant pile of deadfall, the fallen trees and fallen branches and things like a barrier between Why? Right. here and there. And it's that temptation of, do we go beyond the barrier? And it sets that from the very beginning. It's almost a Chekhov's gun. Of course, they're going to go over the barrier. Yeah, right. Um, but what draws them over that ends up being some of the most blood chillingly terrifying things well, imaginable. Am I right in remembering that there was, you know, there was that barrier of trees and then soon afterwards the doctor and his wife get into some kind of argument. Cause she doesn't want to, uh, she doesn't want to talk about death. Or the- yes. She's very death phobic. Yeah. yeah. And I thought like those trees, that was like a metaphor for that. Like that idea, she doesn't want to deal with grief. It it really is that denial, isn't it? Um, and and a very much a symbol of getting over that to what ends up being a very uh, scary truth. Like the barrier is literally, we are trying to protect you from this horrifying truth. Don't go over it. Uh, so there's some of that too of, or, you know, you could take that all the way back to the Bible with the garden of Eden uh, and the, the knowledge, tree mm, of knowledge tree of uh, and you pluck that fruit and there's no going back. And so it's a story as old as time. And I, and I think that's one thing I love about it is that you can still, you know, pluck those little fruits and put them in the story and they still resonate because that pursuit of knowledge uh, and going too far, it can really wreck you. Yes, exactly. That's- <laughs> you got to be careful with that our stuff. Curiosity, <laughs> our desire to know. Yeah. To- it can destroy you. Yeah. 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 My friends joke that my desire for things to make sense is eventually going to be what gets me killed. And I, I don't know <laughs> that they're right. But one of those things that's kind of interesting about that book and that interesting about this thread of things that have to do with things that are that are dark is that, you know, I think to some extent, and please interrupt me if I have this wrong, but the wife's sister had died of something when Yes. It, it was yeah. a spinal meningitis. Okay. Okay. So it, it reminds me of like that idea of trauma. You know, you have trauma. Do you cross that line? Right. Because, you know, trauma is like this curse of if you do cross the line and deal with it, it can consume you. If you don't cross that line, it will surely right. consume you. 
So, you know, I've always thought to your point that like Pet Cemetery was about grief, but I also kind of relate to the idea that for someone who's traumatized, it feels like a no-win situation. And yes. that when their child dies in the book, which eventually happens, it feels very much, and that was one of my takeaways after reading it, what a no-win situation. And oh, I think yeah. we can all relate to feeling that in like, you know, end of life moments. Like if I let this person go, I'll never have them back again. But if I don't let them go, they'll suffer. And, you know, and it it is interesting too, because I love the way the book pivots emotionally because, you know, through the first half of the book, we are, well, through most of the book, we're in Lewis's point of view, uh, the main character, the father. And uh, he always comes off as this very meticulously analytical, very realistically driven man, you know, very anchored to reality. And he's not into superstitions or religion or anything like that. And then when that horrifying trauma of their little boy getting killed happens, it suddenly pivots because it was, it was Rachel. We were supposed to be worried about Rachel who couldn't even talk about death because of what happened to her sister. We actually see Rachel take a healthier uh, walk through dealing with the horror of what happened to her son Mm -hmm. and actually grapple with grief in a more natural way he did then lewis just completely was consumed i think because he when you go from hardened realist to experiencing something as horrific as losing a child i think that the propensity to completely lose yourself is even can be even greater because it's almost like you're falling from a greater height whereas you know somebody who is like rachel she was never going to climb as high as lewis on on the hubris ladder and, you know, and, and so when she lost her son, she, she didn't have quite as far to fall because she always knew it was going to be a horror. Like, you know, she already knows death is the most horrible thing ever. So, right. you know, and, and also knew that it based on her life experience that you can. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so on the one hand, yeah, she, she was in a very deep place of denial in the first half of the book. And then she ended up being the saner one. And of course, you know, it didn't end up doing her much good, but it was, it made it more tragic ultimately seeing what happened to to her as she was trying to wrestle with, you know, so many different things through the death of her son. So, um, but I think Lewis ultimately does, um, dad, Lewis and Rachel. yeah, Lewis and he, yeah, Lewis. And he absolutely represents that being a like the denial and the inability to internalize and grapple the difficult things, uh, which I think is honestly a very male trait. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that he King told that so superbly. I think he nailed that on the emotional level where and gave a lot of credit, I think, to women who, you know, have a higher pain threshold physically and I think emotionally in a lot of ways as oh, well, yeah. just you know, because of that. So I mean, people can come at me all they want uh, for me saying that, but I, no, I, it's I true. think it's true. No, no my <laughs> yeah. experience to your point about the physical yeah. one, that when I think of my families and my on both sides, my parents, and I think of all the suffering that's occurred, it's often been the women who are standing up holding us up. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's in the men have to, they don't want to face it because they're afraid to fall apart. Because if they fall apart, then they can't be there. They can't be the the rock or the support that they think they need to be all the time, you know. 
Yeah. And if you're a man, it's a lot easier to think that you're invincible because there are fewer enemies. There are fewer predators for men than there are for women. And I think women have to grapple with the idea that the world is not safe in a way that men don't have to. Um, (laughs) You know, oddly, I think the Barbie movie, actually, uh, I don't know if you've seen that yet, but that I will just say that the that movie very smartly uh, demonstrates that dynamic, and and I'll just say, and it's not really spoiling anything, but there's a minor part in the plot well, I mean, where I, I I love movies even when I know it's going to happen. Oh, awesome! Well, well, Barbie and and Ken go over to the quote real world, our world from Barbie Land. They come over, and immediately uh, Barbie notices that the men are just all looking at her objectifying the heck out of her. And they're looking at him too. They're looking at Ken and they're both dressed goofily, you know, and, and roller skating outfits and everything. And she is just like, this is kind of creeping me out. What is going on here? And Ken is like, I don't see the problem. This feels good. People are noticing me, you know? And so that was like, (laughs) this is meant the male female dynamic here, guys. Just in that perfect little scene. And well, that's uh, great. I'm yeah. now going to go see it. <laughs> so here's my my last pet cemetery question. Well, I mean, we might as well tell the end of the story, but sure. But why didn't they move out? When the yeah, nurse has the heart attack on Halloween. Yeah, run over on Thanksgiving. It's like a sign to me. <laughs> oh, for sure. You know, and and I think that is the classic uh, example of audience participation in a horror story where we see people going up the stairs when they hear the sound and it's like, don't go up there. Uh, why aren't you leaving? Yeah. Yeah. And, and honestly, yeah, I, I would feel like, especially after the son dies, you know, but it all happened very quickly. I mean, it, it, it by a truck, right? Yes, he did. And within like two weeks, I think Lewis said, dug him up and buried him in the in the micmac burial ground where dead things come back to life so and and yeah they should have absolutely i think it is like the other the other interesting point to take out of that is i think that don't lose yourself too much in the grief as you're wrestling with it because you have people around you that you know you you need to be with your people and in times of hardship and and pain and and people tend to turn inward and go and hide. Yeah, and I think even the message of like when the sun gauge, right, is resurrected. Yes. Like he was so different than he was. Oh and, yeah. And I felt like, you know, there's this uh, Judith Royce, the children's author, talks about this idea of we have certain necessary losses and that we you know, cannot protect ourselves or our loved ones from pain or the inroads of time and that losses are necessary to, and leaving and letting go are necessary to, to, to growing, right. Moving on and growing. And, you know, he's resurrected as somebody else and it's that lack of acceptance of the loss. Like you can't have it back. You're refusing to accept the loss. And I always thought that like you have, you know, this very, very different, dangerous child that ultimately the father ends up, well, the child ends up killing two people, including his mother. Right. Yeah. And then ultimately the father has to kill the child. 
And it's it's the letting, having to let go, right? The cost of not letting go. Yes, absolutely. By the time he came to his uh, senses, it was way too late. And, you know, the book paints it in some ways, well, not in some ways, it paints it rather explicitly as uh, the influence of the burial ground, the the pull that it has, the attraction that it has. And it gets back to that, again, that that sort of addiction aspect or that sort of like that thing that pulls at you, that obsession, that obsessive behavior that tends to grip us at the most intense times in our lives. And, and you'll, and like a good addict, he doesn't learn the lesson. (laughs) Absolutely. Until it has taken everything from him. And even then he didn't really learn it because there's a coda to that whole book and uh, that he buries his wife up there too. Totally what I meant. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the cycle repeats. Did I have to ask you why we are on Stephen King and we don't, you know, I'll have to have you on my show if your answer is yes, because well, I'll have you on my show anyway, regardless. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about anything. But I have lots of dark things I can talk about. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but have you read the Dark Tower series? I have. I have. Okay, so then you also I know, yeah. Copy of Dark Tower number one. <sighs> oh, it is just absolutely that is the one series I bought it in the late nineties when it was just four books, mm-hmm. and I read all four in a fury. I I was completely obsessed. And then I got to the end of book four and then I went right back and picked up book one and started reading it again. I could not let myself go out of that. I was completely obsessed and became a tower junkie from that day. And And that's sort of like the fantasy epic. But as I recall, am I right that he did he not think, am I right in thinking that he didn't think his fans would necessarily gravitate toward those stories yes it was very much a um passion project a little niche project for him and uh i believe he well he wrote book one i think he was only about 21 years old when he wrote it uh which is incredible to me uh because i've i've you know i revisit that series every couple years and it completely blows my mind every time i read that first book and realize that that he's you know, he's younger than my oldest son now uh, <laughs> when he wrote that. And it's because uh, it, he combines like the old West magical stuff. There's yes. definitely like some, you know, King authoring or King author type stuff in there. Yes. And I'm like, I don't even know if I knew that much at that age. <laughs> no, it's incredible. And and then he went and I don't think he wrote the second and third books until a few years later, like until his star had caught. And then he had that first book ready. And then I think then they let him release the other books um, and then it was just the three books for a while. And then he got even more famous. I don't think he wrote book four until well into his career, but well, into the nineties, um, really. Not bad uh, so. George R. R. Martin. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I mainly ask, cause I mean, again, that's his magnum opus. And again, he tackles that theme of addiction and obsession um, yeah. in his own way with that story. Roland yeah. main characters on that quest for the dark tower, which is this, it's supposed to be, this kind of a nexus at the center of the universe is on the best yes, way to put it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and what was that? 
it, Roland is from a, a world that's quote unquote left or moved on, right? Yes. Yeah. Mid world, uh, you know, which, yeah, different level of the tower, as they would call it. And you're right. King Arthur plays a lot into it. It's very much of a how we would imagine it. Um, although it feels like a, a King Arthur world that was built in the dust of a much greater civilization uh, that is no longer is what well, it always kind of felt like. Speaking of darkness, in the beginning of that, when I first read that, I could not figure out the main character, Roland's. I could not figure out what the heck his motives were. I I knew <laughs> he wanted to get to this dark tower, but as it, yeah, yeah. It was really that first book is really almost just a silent meditation in its own way. And it, and, and it, and it stands on its own. I mean, somebody could read that book and never know about the rest of the story and it would and go about their life um, and not know that it, that whole story ties together, not only just the seven books of the main series, but there are several short stories There is an eighth book that is kind of an offshoot. And then there's all the other stories that in King's, realm that tie into the dark tower as well so uh it's it's sort of like the the spine of his whole uh existence i mean which is kind of funny because i'm gonna get get kicked out of stephen king club right now when i tell you what my favorite book of his is oh okay i'm ready who loved tom gordon (gasps) no i will never kick you out of the club you are in the club (laughs) gonna stay in that club that book is beautiful love the story of her in the woods listening to the baseball game you know serving her food Mm -hmm. Um, you know it reminded me of you know, there's a monster and the, the there's only a monster in the end, but it has nothing. It, it so much has to do with what's going on in her own head during the entire trip and the journey and the learning. Yes. And, you know, it, it, even the people searching for her, going after her, I always felt like that was a powerful metaphor for me. I think during times where I was lost on, on, on my, you know, on my own or in my own space or whatever was going on, just this idea of like traveling in my own head with plenty of people worried on the other sides, not being able to find me Mm -hmm. and this just trying to find rest and peace and having something like Tom Gordon, the baseball player that helps guide me through. And I just thought, you know, she's by the end, she's got pneumonia. She's knocked out. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. The she, monster is like, whatever. She, uh, <laughs> she, through all of that, she, she had her North star, you know, and I, and I think that's uh, such a powerful thing. And it's a great story for kids to read, to be honest. I, I would let any 10 year old read that book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's good because it's a short book. So I think a 10 year old could read it, you know, feasibly, you know, for a, you know, over the course of a few days or whatever, but because I think not all, it, it's a prow- powerful story for just about everybody. And that, that resourcefulness that he yeah. gives her is kind of a beautiful thing. And it, I think it is, it felt real. It felt unique to a nine or 10 year old kid because they would be just old enough to realize they're in some shit and just in, but also old enough to maybe be able to 
find their way out or, or kind of like uh, keep well, going. Childlike, yeah. There's something about, I think that childlike optimism that's hidden underneath it all that yeah. those of us who are adults don't always it, <laughs> it be harder for us to hold on to or find. Oh yeah, for sure. I am, um, you know, our, our mutual friend, I think Robert uh, Palmer, he, um, mm posted this quote. I have no idea where it's from, but he posted it today. And it said, be the person who still tries after failure, after disappointment, after frustration, after heartache, after exhaustion, just be the person who continues to show up. And that's what I always thought about her, that she was just the person who kept on going. And I think that, you know, that idea of as an adult reading that book and tapping into something, I was barely an adult, but tapping into something <laughs> childlike, right? To get, mm-hmm. get me through. I was going to ask you something. You were talking earlier about, like, we were talking about the, you know, truth with a lie, you know, mm-hmm. wrapped around it. And we were talking about, like, that idea that sometimes it's easier to write over about ourselves or our own heartaches or our own worries through fiction. I was, I was just curious. So like I obviously fiction is what got me into writing, but I became a nonfiction writer mm-hmm. and became a journalist. And part of what really kind of like kept me from pursuing fiction was I knew I could not write authentic characters. The real world characters, totally, I could authentically write. Yeah, them. yeah. But, you know, I struggled with things like dialogue because I would go back and read my writing and be like, "Yeah, that's not what that human would do." Um, <laughs> so, 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 I went a different direction. So, I'm always curious to ask people about how, how do you get the inspiration for, and how do you write authentic characters, and also not just authentic characters because you have all these characters that you're trying to make authentic and you're trying to put them on authentic storylines because you could have yes. authentic characters without authentic story. So go ahead. Tell me what's the magic. So I can become a the ma- <laughs> I, I think um, it's, it's, it's a multifaceted thing. So when I first started writing uh, fiction as an adult, I should say, cause I've been writing stories as a kid and up through it. But when I, got into my late twenties. That was when I decided, all right, I'm going to do this for real. Uh, I did blogging for a while, but my heart was always in fiction. And so I started writing a lot of short stories. And to me, short story is short fiction allows for you to work in sort of a parable mindset. And, you know, I, I grew up going to Sunday school and, you know, reading a lot of Bible stories and things like that. And, you know, I'm, I'm more of a, a spiritual agnostic now, but those stories still uh, resonate with me in a lot of ways. And so a short, short stories were more about just the concept of something. Uh, what's the idea? What's the main idea? And then I would just populate that. I would answer that question or discover that concept and I would just build a character in it. And I didn't put too much thought into it. It wasn't until I started writing longer fiction that I realized, oh, these people have to be kind of real. Because by that point, I was already really into trying to tell a story that had an idea that could resonate with somebody in some way. And so when it came then to writing novels, it was like, okay, what's, what is the most powerful thing that sticks with me throughout my own life? What are these concepts, these um, principles that I always find myself 
going back to. And for me, it's always this concept of duality Mm. and how people present their one face to the world. And then there's another one kind of Mm. in the shadow. And so, and I noticed this most in the context of marriage and family. And that to me is the dynamic that centers nearly everything is this concept of what looks like a beautiful marriage is not necessarily, or what looks like a beautiful life isn't necessarily. And, you know, we see this through social media a lot. Yeah. It's really interesting. So like, this is one of those things that, that grabs me. And I know my mind is like a little uh, twisted in ways that most people aren't. But hey, well, you know, that's why we're friends. Right? Yes, that's why we're friends. <laughs> Absolutely. So, but like, I've always struggled. Um, you know, they talk about this idea of like the mask of sanity that a lot of psychopaths or serial killers have. And I, you know, I've always struggled with understanding how other people don't understand that. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. And by that, I, I just mean like, the the notion that you know like we talk we've talked about like btk dennis raider or someone like israel keys or like pick your person i think ted bundy oh yeah is a great example of this that all these people had dual lives right they had this life where where that they like to show to the public or to their family. And they had these life where they pursued in Mm -hmm. these cases, in their cases, like sexually sadistic things. Well, remove the sexual sadism from it and make it about something else. And I think to some extent, we all live in duality. Like very few of us are like running down the hallway, sharing our deepest, darkest secrets i was just talking to one of my closest friends recently and she's an absolute sweetheart and she brought up something about i don't know it was religion or growing up in the church and i was saying to her there are no thought crimes we are all like this we all have our public face and we all have our and i wonder why that i wonder whether that's part of the reason why that resonates with people like oh yeah on the conscious level, can't deal with the fact they, 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 we want to embrace this idea of authenticity and that this authentic person is a person that I'm showing to the world, but the reality is different. Oh, because the second you show it, you have now, nowadays, especially you have thousands of people on the internet prepared to, you know, destroy you for it. Ah, I already did that. Yeah, <laughs> he did that. I'm good. You know what? It doesn't bother me anymore. <laughs> right. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, uh, you know, we we want to say that we're more um accepting of different types of people, but it's like, oh, but maybe not that way, or maybe not this way, you know. And so, or when people mess up and they try to atone for that. That you just see a pile on where nobody wants to give them any measure. So what is that? What does that do to people? It forces them further into those dual uh, mindsets. Because I mean, I'll just say, you know, even parents do this to their children. They don't mean to. Oftentimes, they don't realize they're doing it because it was done to them. But it is like you're going to be this person that I want you to be, and I'm going to yeah. form you into this mold. And then you're creating another kid that has to then live to please mom and dad while also keeping 
other parts of their life separate and secret. Well, so and, it, you know? it's really interesting that you landed in that. And I don't, I, I know you, you studied psychology, so forgive me if I'm telling you something. Or you know, oh. but like Carl Jung had this theory mm-hmm. of the shadow and a lot of what Carl said may have been a little bit hokey, but this idea of the shadow and it's really, really, it was, it really, it resonated with me, this idea that we're almost like our purest selves as, as children. And no matter how good our parents are, how loving they are, how they much they want us to be, uh, who they want to be, the little things in life, their, their likes, their dislikes, their hopes mm-hmm. for us, their, their dreams, what society tells us causes us to stuff a little bit of ourselves and a little bit of ourselves at a time. And it's yeah. like a shadow that follows us. Right. And, and one of the things that he sort of hoists is like, if you embrace your shadow, mm-hmm there can be great things that come from it. If you don't embrace your shadow, you might become like Richard Nixon, right? Like where demons are driving you your whole life. And I always, you know, like when I'm working with um, clients or even colleagues, when they're talking to me about their lives, I'll often ask them to go back, go, go back and ask your parents what you were like as a kid. Yes. Contrast that to where they are now. And it's shocking. That's so different. That. Absolutely. Yeah. I, well, you know, it's funny. I'll ask. I've, I've, I have a much m- more negative view of myself as a as a kid than my parents do, mm. and that's wild to me because I know that I I could be difficult. I was I was very argumentative, and I was very I, I didn't I I was often fighting against type. I I was feeling like I was being cast a certain way as this sort of innocent, gullible, uh, sweet kid. Mm. And, and I was like, no, because that's minimizing me, me and me and my, uh, my worldview and how I see things. They just didn't feel valid or validated at all. And so, well, and I don't screen yeah. negative things. It's, yeah. You know, it's really interesting. You say that Allison, because you know, you, you mentioned that part about being like an innocent gullible child. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. You know, society might scream there's something wrong with it, but I actually think there's something beautiful or even <laughs> I wish I had I wish I had appreciated it more because I think if anything, um, it forced me to grow up way too fast. And, you know, I was a, a mother by the time I was twenty one and married at twenty and and um, you know, because I thought, okay, the kid the kid stuff's done. And it was mostly because, you know, being young sucked because I had you know, bullies and, you know, I hated school and all that. So what was that? Where'd you grow up? Uh, Well, I was born um, in Oxford, Ohio, but then we moved up to um, Pontiac, Michigan when I was about three. And so I spent the majority of my childhood was in Michigan Mm -hmm. and suburban Detroit area. And then we moved back down to Ohio when I started high school. Um, And then I moved out to Washington state when I was 19. I, I, essentially ran away from home and, and mm. set up shop out there and got married and, um, and all that. So I'm kind of divided in between. You, multiple you, you mentioned bullying and not feeling. Oh yeah. When I was a kid, I mean, especially I was the very gawky, like very tall, very awkward, big kid, you know? And, uh, I didn't, I didn't fit in very well at all. And my, and you know, things were very brand driven back then. And I think they still are to a large extent, 
but you know, I didn't have the right shoes. I didn't have the right look. I didn't have, you know, and I just, I was never in with anybody. And so that made me very self-conscious about fitting in with people. And so I, I kind of like isolated myself a lot. And I think that's where I started reading and writing a lot because I just didn't connect with anybody that any of my peers until I was really in the middle of high school. And then I started making friends, but, but yeah, it's, it's a, uh, but yeah, once I ran away from home, I mean, and then I was like, Oh, I'm a grown up now. And Oh, that's, that's sweet. That's really funny. You know, looking back at 20 year old me and, and really thinking like, Oh yeah, you hopped on an airplane. Good for you. You know, uh, but yeah, it, it's that, that, that whole thing, you know, going back to your point though, about like pa- the way parents see their kids and everything. I think that my, I think parents just want to see their kids always remember their kids always in the best light. If they love them, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's really my, my parents would just give me the benefit of the doubt, even though I know for a fact that I was an asshole, like a giant okay. asshole that a lot of the time. The they experienced you. It really may not have been. Yeah. Like, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe that's a sign I needed to maybe forgive myself a little bit. Um, give yourself a little bit of grace. A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. I think just if a, I were to like judge, oh, I would hate to judge my five-year-old or seven-year-old self. But like, I think for some of us, you know, that, that kid who might feel like he's being argumentative or being difficult, that for us, it's like endearing to us, or it's a sign of growth, or it's a sign of like independence. And yeah, I, I wouldn't doubt that your parents don't legitimately view it very differently than you. No, and my and now that my kids are grown and I see how they are and and uh you know, they're free to have their opinions and they're free to express themselves and I try not to re- repress them. Although I find to a certain extent we all do that to ourselves, so I, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um so even they have a bit of duality that they deal with no matter how open and accepting we've tried to be. Mm-hmm. Um I think it is really a, a natural it's human a tendency in ourselves. It's a battle yeah. within ourselves, right? For sure. Yeah. yeah. We talk and it's true. I think society and Parents play a role, but it's really driven more by our desire to be loved. Yes. Associating love with certain things. Yes. Yes, I agree. The um, I was going to ask you just a little bit about, for you, do you remember your first books or authors that inspired you that really mm. kind of like were, you know, you mentioned that thing about how writing gave you a space where you sort of felt safe. Did reading do that? And were there any authors for you? Oh, you know, as a young reader, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. I, one of my early, the earliest book I remember absolutely loving as a kid, like a very small kid, a very simple book. Uh, but it was good night moon was my favorite book as a, as a child. And I think I was obsessed with the artwork in it probably more than anything. Cause the book is very simplistic. You're it there. It's a kid saying goodnight to all the objects in his room before they turn off the light and go to bed. But there's something very trippy about that book. I don't know if you've seen that book in a I long time not. or not. Not the art, recently. The artwork in it is like something out of like a, 
like a fever dream. MC almost. Asher. Right. A, you know, if you just turned up the saturation level on it just a little bit, I mean, it's like a bad trip almost. <laughs> and I was like, upset. I didn't know that that's what I was obsessed with as a kid. That's just how my adult brain interprets it now. But I couldn't stop staring at the imagery in this book. And honestly, I think from there, I started seeing stories as any story that would have this notion so in it. Interesting what you just said. Oh, what's that? Stories. Yeah. Stories. Absolutely. It. I mean, and, and I look for any story that would have me or have the character discovering a, another world of some kind. Mm-hmm. And so anything that would uh, make me think that there is something else on, you know, beneath uh, this world. So stories like Peter Pan or stories like, oh my gosh, I just had a wrinkle in time, you know, things like that, that just had me convinced that there's somewhere other than here. You know, I'm, I'm looking for the world behind the waterfall. I'm that kid who like, if you climb behind the waterfall and you go behind the waterfall, what if there's like a magical world? Wizard of Oz was such a formative thing. Because the tornado, the terrible, scary, awful tornado picked up her house and dropped it in this beautiful, amazing, magical world. Uh, so that's the stuff that that roped me in as a young reader. And then and then I found King at the age of 11. And I... Which is not all that different. It's just a scary world. But it's still a magical yeah. world that's, that's different. Maybe there was like a driver desire for you to be taken to another place i think i think there is uh i i freak people out and i've said this before and they this is where people usually turn off uh their brains where i'm concerned is uh i've i've way back before we really knew how crazy elon musk was and he wanted to do that whole mars thing Mm -hmm. where you know sending people up there to form a colony and live i've i said i would absolutely if I didn't have like my kids or my husband and I was a little more, you know, just me on this planet, a little more solitary, I would have been the first one to sign up for that damn yeah. thing. I, I mean, if I were younger too, cause I think I was already outside the, the age limit for that. But this idea that like, I want my bones to be somewhere else, not on this planet <laughs> is I, I want my bones to be on the moon. I want them to be on Mars. I want them to be, floating in space with Gene Roddenberry. I I mean, I want, you're an explorer. um, Yeah. And I think that's at my heart. I think that's what it really comes down to is, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if I'm from here. (laughs) Like, like, am I meant to be on this planet? (laughs) I think so. I don't know, but, um, but yeah, I think that's, you know, if you're digging down to those Freudian and Jungian levels, um, that's probably what it, what it all amounts to is, uh, I'm just an alien, man. Trying to find my planet. And I don't, I don't know where it is. Oh my God. That's going to be taken out of context. Well, isn't that way. all of us though, on some level? <laughs> yeah. We're, we're all, there's a reason why ET resonated with people. Oh, for sure. <laughs> for sure. I am phoning home. My finger is glowing. My friend, I am ready. <laughs> Time to go. Beam me up, Scotty. I am ready. But, uh, but I, I, I'm just trying to make the best of it. Cause I know I'm marooned on this planet and you got to make the best of it. And luckily there are some humans I like. I like it, so. <laughs> Beautiful here or there. <laughs> One of the things I was thinking, it's just, 
King was a turning point for you into sort of stuff that was darker. I'm just curious because, like, we were talking about Pet Cemetery before and grief. What do you think the cost for us as people, whether it's true or whether it's fiction, what's the cost? What do we lose by by not paying attention to or avoiding darkness? You know, that's a very good question um, that I entertain a bit looking at the dynamic between my husband and I, because he'll he'll watch anything with me. Like if I want, if I say he'll be in the middle of watching something and he'll literally just hand the remote over and say, it's yours, you know, do whatever you want and we'll watch it. And I don't often like to do that because when I want to watch something, it's usually going to be some messed up documentary or, you know, some, some dark crime documentary or something like that. And I know that that's not his bag. And so he's not into horror movies. He's not into true crime. He's not into any of that. He doesn't mind exploring darker subjects through the certain contexts, usually science fiction, but but he is definitely more of the lighter side. And I've been able to, I've wondered myself, like, but I've seen how he's dealt with grief and I've seen how he's dealt with challenge. And he manages to stay so steady through a lot of it. And he just has a mindset that I find very mysterious because it's very, um, you know, I'm freaking out externally and I am the person that wears my heart on my sleeve and I am uh, just very much th- what you see is what you get. And he just processes things very rationally and very calmly. And it's kind of fascinating. So on the one hand, I'd say we're setting ourselves up for a lot of problems if we co- are in this realm of toxic positivity, mm. this idea of, oh, you know, you look at all the climate change and all that, but if we just live for each day and don't think about it, then, you know, it'll be fine. We'll, we'll figure it out. And meanwhile, coastal cities are disappearing and, you know, and all these places mm-hmm. are on fire. Uh, and so the, that kind of denialism is the more dangerous thing. I just think that there are people that process it differently and we have to be careful not to assign a negative, uh, thing to that if we don't see someone you know apoplectic over something you know they they might be processing it in a different way so i i think it really depends on how people are behaving i, I think what it comes down to and you can usually tell when people are very much in denial about something and they usually get very hostile when confronted with that and uh and i don't see that in my husband but i i do see a, a difference in how he and i process hard information what i'm taking from that is maybe there are maybe it's that there are many different roads to a healthy place and that we just need to take the one that will get us there and that through people like you and i maybe that involves some darkness and living in a little bit of darkness and for other people you know i was just telling you before we started recording i've been in the head of two serial killers the last week and (laughs) and you it's really been much longer than that. We, yeah. You, you did your research on your on Ted Bundy. <laughs> oh you yeah. Me that book's on the shelf right now. And mm-hmm. I'm, but I'm I'm wondering whether there is something like about our in our humanity and our pursuit for something that we get out of that that maybe other people would not. But it's it's about honoring whatever path 
different people need to get to them. And yeah, and I think as long as we do get to the same place when it comes to respecting people's, I, I guess if nobody's getting hurt, it you know, we should respect people's paths, uh, essentially, you know, as long as we're not sort of like depriving other people of certain things, certain rights and certain what have you, or we you are wherever you want, as long as it's not over a person. Right. Right. And you know, I want, I want people to feel safe and comfortable, you know, processing darkness, how they need to. Um, you can absolutely tell when somebody is very avoidant of, of anything approaching dark um, or horror um, but they may confront darkness and horror and those aspects through other mediums. Maybe they don't watch scary movies, but maybe they watch cable news every day, which I do not do. Right. Or maybe um, the real is running in their own head. Basically. And I have my own fears and avoidances. Like when I mention cable news, it is literally, I cannot, I cannot. It is as soon as I see an anchor on a screen with the little, the little graphics running underneath my blood pressure pings about 30 points. It doesn't matter what they're talking about. I, I don't know what it is. My long time partner now ex partner, but best friend, she would stop reading the news and give me the job. Just letting her know anything that's important. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I will, re- I, I will happily read it or I'll happily disseminate it through talk and discussion, or I'll go on to, you know, various boards. I'm like, please give me something to read or give me a podcast or give me something. It's something about the, the, the overly made up personalities (laughs) (laughs) that the sense that beneath all of the things that the words that they're just spilling out into the void is this message that we must be angry and outraged no matter what. And that to me is not a healthy way to explore the dark. Right. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, absolutely. Right. So, and I think there's some element to what the real darkness and and how much of it we can handle. Maybe some of these dark messages need. And I, I'm curious what your thought is. Like, you know, we mentioned the Bundy thing in the, the book there. I don't know whether you're willing to talk about it, but I, I'm curious yeah. from your perspective, just thinking more broadly, even beyond sort of like horror and fiction into the, the real world where we're recording right now on the day that information came out about the Delphi murders. That was yeah. graphic. That's Abby, mm. Abby Williams and Liberty Tremaine who were killed, I think in 2017 in Delphi, Indiana. And that was just horrifically, I mean, there was a story in there, but the details of the killings were, 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 were really difficult. And I remember telling a friend today, do not read it. And yeah. It. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, and I know the friend you're talking about and I completely agree. And I, I hope she did not. Um, yeah. Because I, I will admit uh, as soon as I got my hands on that document, 135 pages, uh saw the table of contents and saw page 28 referring to the crime scene. And I took a breath. I took a very deep breath because, you know, those details have been kept so concealed over the last six years, seven years uh, that nobody knew anything for the longest time. We were left to um, sort of imagine the worst in our minds and without revealing even a single detail of that crime scene, I can absolutely say it surpassed the worst 
that was in my mind in, in certain ways. Um, or it was, I would say it either surpassed it or met it right there in terms of what is the worst thing that I could think of that could have actually happened. And yeah, reading that, um, confronted directly, like that's what happened. Wow. This wasn't just a, come on down kids and quick and dirty and done and out. Uh, you know, there was a, there was more to it than that. And, uh, that is something that I would definitely say, I don't think people need to read or confront things that way in order to, um, have feelings about it or, uh, you know, but, uh, so I, people need to be careful with what they read. Cause that, that's going to live in my head for a little while. And Ooh. I can only imagine, and I'm just a nobody just reading this stuff, family and the, and the people involved directly in it, knowing now that that's out in the world, that has to be Ooh. a hell of a thing. <laughs> so difficult for them. Yeah. yeah. And for the family members, I think, you know, just listening to you, something dawned on me. Like, mm. why did I, why did I read it? Why, why, why did yeah. I read something like that? Why do I read a lot of these things? I think I am so desperate and I don't know where this comes from in me for things to make sense. You know, yeah. I have these conversations, I read these books, I take those psychological or other messages out of them. But, you know, I feel a tremendous amount of sadness for the girls, but I can't say that I felt horror or fear or sadness in that particular moment reading the details. Mm -hmm. I, I just felt this is so terrible, but, but at least now it makes sense. Yes. And, yes. And, yes. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. The Delphi offered has offered a really interesting opportunity for us to ask ourselves whether we needed that information. We, we had six years with just the mere suggestion that it was very bad to carry this huge momentous involvement in this case that people have had all across the internet um, of people obsessed with this case and interested in this case and, and making it their pet case that they want to see solved. And they were able to do that without knowing exactly what happened to those girls. And um, so now am I enhanced anymore by knowing those details? Mm -hmm. No, but I can at least say, okay, I get why they were, why the cops were so quiet on it. Yeah. And why they didn't want those details out, not just because they were so graphic and horrific, because, you know, we get details like that on a number of cases uh, with free and clear without even having to go digging for it. Mm -hmm. um, but they were very specific. They were very specific and enough to where if you give away even a little bit of it, it might be too much uh, yeah. for the investigation, you know. Yeah. But, I mean, um, there's four investigators, too, in addition to the family members, because I think there's a part of us that want, needs to, and I'm not going to speak for all of us, but I'm, I'll speak for me, that mm -hmm. needs to understand things to feel mm -hmm. safe, right? Like if I understand why somebody like Bundy did what he did or who he targeted, yeah. or I understand, you know, uh, the way that uh, what my client at a large company once or what my partner wants or, 
did or decided that if I can just understand it all, I can keep mm-hmm. myself safe. Yeah. And I think yeah. there's, there's an element of that, that, that is going to cause me to rethink some of my more. Well, it's interesting that you, you put it that way too, because people that avoid are thinking they have the same motivation. They want to keep themselves safe. Maybe we're just all trying to stay safe. We are, and and we're all we're all uh, looking for a roadmap, you know. And I think that's we we go, we consult these uh, these court documents, or we watch movies, or read books, or do these things to like find our way to how to feel about stuff. Uh, <laughs> that sounds very basic, but. Um, and self-explanatory, I guess, or self-evident rather. But um, I, I don't think that your approach is at all illogical or bad. And I, and I relate to it quite a bit because there were, there are roads that I have gone down very, very dark ones in order to seek that same understanding. Prime example uh, being of uh, when uh, ISIS was uh, beheading captives. Mm. um, And there were some, I think of one American man in particular who his video got released. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know why Jason, I don't know why I watched that video. I should not have watched it. I, but I wanted to understand what in the most base thought in my brain at that time was, is beheading anything like we see in the movies, Mm. you know, any of the horror movies, is it like, you know, quick and done. Yeah, and it's over with. No, probably uh, James, James Foley, right? Yeah, it yeah. Is, it is not like the movies. No, it is not. And it took me only five seconds of the worst thing I've ever seen and heard in my life on a video to get that understanding. Did it make me feel better? No, not emotionally. Uh, but now I know. Yeah. Um, and I guess I can do what I will with that information going forward. <sighs> So I don't know. I play both sides of that that yeah. well, <laughs> that issue all the time. I guess don't feel too bad. I looked at yeah. the video too, and I yeah. I remember this time where um, it was January sixth, and the videos were coming out afterwards. And yeah. there was a woman who was one of the I don't know whether we call them protesters or break-in artists or whatever you whatever you want to call them. Right. Um, but one of the people who broke into the Capitol, Ashley Babbitt. Oh yes. And I watched the video of her getting shot, bleeding out, yeah. dying on the floor. And I watched it over and over again. And it was so interesting, Allison. This again, this will make you feel better about your version of it. And I, <laughs> I, I talked to my therapist in my therapy session. I was like, I don't get it. I don't get why I'm watching this over and over again and trying to. And she said, why don't you think about it for a week? And I came back into therapy the next week. I was like, I know why. I'm just trying to feel. Yeah. I'm just trying to feel. Yeah. And I, and it was just weird. And it was sad and it's tragic. But I think we live in a world that desensitizes us to so much, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, the yeah. The boats that are going in the ocean, the bad thing that's happening to these kids in the cities. And I think in that moment, I'm watching this person die and just trying to like, connect because yeah i think i think on the base level human beings we know i mean that the thing that set the one thing that separates us from really the rest of the animal kingdom is the knowledge that we are going to die one day now 
we don't all accept that we act accordingly but we have an we have an awareness of our mortality mm. in general and but we only view it in the abstract normally we don't get to witness now i think back in the pre-industrial age especially or maybe you know pre-mid 20th century human beings had a much up close and personal um, relationship with death and corpses and everything associated with dying because there was so much disease, so much warfare, so many just bodies just everywhere uh, for various reasons throughout human history. And then a point came where we removed death from society and we put it behind the closed safe doors of a funeral home and made it so those people can handle it. And then we have really no up close and personal relationship or encounter with death. And so I think mm-hmm. that that part of it, um, you know, because it used to be if a family member died, we would put them, they would lie in, in our in state in our homes for five days or three days or whatever, depending on the custom. We would never think twice. We would never do that now as a society. In this, in Western society, I should no, say, it's like pack them up, ship them up, and yeah. right. And so, I think there is something where those difficult things we removed them from our, you know, need to function our our society, and we gave people a job to handle that for us. Mm. These funeral directors, these more, you know, people, whatnot, and they handle all the yucky stuff, mm. and then oh, we yeah. can go about, it, you know, and. So, we're, and so I think that drives birth, it. Right? We're there for birth. Mm-hmm. We're there for growth. We're there for yeah. adolescence, adulthood. But we really are afraid of that whole end of life cycle. We really are. And, and it shows in so many ways, so many key ways through that have nothing really to directly do with death. But I think our fear of death just drives our, so many things of the way we do stuff and and denialism for a lot of things. And so I think it then also probably creates impulses in us to get this idea. Like when you watched Ashley Babbitt die like that, I think you're right. You were trying to feel, and I think tra- probably trying to pluck something out of the abstract mm-hmm. and, and tell your brain, this is a real person dying, yeah. losing their life right now. And that is a powerful and sad Think no matter who she was right. and what she believed in, that woman died in that video rather stupidly and senselessly. I mean, come on, you know, that didn't have to happen. You know, the moment where I stopped was when I felt sympathy for her. Yeah. And that, yeah. And yeah. And it was very. And that's what it all boiled down to in the end was she was trying to climb through a damn door and then she was dead a second later. Yeah. And it's like, you didn't need to even be there, but you were driven there for whatever reason. And that's where you ended up. And, and, and the same goes for, you know, the countless police videos that we see of young men getting shot to death. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the one that sticks with me the most is, and that I watched the most was the story of, um, Oh, his name was, uh, last name was Crawford. I can't remember his first name, but he, um, was shot and killed, um, in a Walmart, that's actually in my town, uh, be, uh, just near me, Beaver Creek, Ohio. And he was the one that was carrying the BB gun around in the store that had been on the shelf. Somebody called 911 thinking he was an active shooter. The cops come in and uh, waste no second to blow this man away. And it was on the security cameras yeah, and he died. Like, he was uh, in his early 20s. I think he was on the phone with his girlfriend. Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, just talking, you know, and then that video of just him just kind of walking around, uh, just talking on the cell phone. How many of us have done that? Walk through a store talking on the phone. Yeah. And he's just, you know, plucking something up off the shelf and walking around with it. It just happened to be a toy gun. But, you know, but that video, I, I think I watched it so many times because in that video, all I could see was a somebody not knowing they're about to die mm. getting murdered uh really and then but also the the people that rushed in to do it um and how quickly they did it and they dispatched him without a single hesitation they walked in shot and he was dead and all i could think was where's the pause right where's that moment where Where's-ed we assess the situation yeah that and 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 that's you know just and but at the end of that video every single time it's like i just watched someone die and that's going to happen to me one day i'm going to die yeah. and i have to think about how that's going to happen and and you know and so that's where my brain goes when i yeah. when i do stuff like that so it all comes back down to pet cemetery and we can't yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah it does yeah. right all roads return there so i'm going to go ahead and give you a chance right like mm-hmm. uh, and uh, before i do that let me just make a plug for your uh podcast ding dong okay. darkness time if people <laughs> have not seen it let me tell you one thing. It is like absolutely authentic. I love your voice. It's way more positive than you guys think. And it's probably also more dark than you could possibly imagine. So, <laughs> we, we, we go, we kind of veer back and forth. We don't want you feeling too safe. Yeah, it's really hard to tell. right? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but yeah, it is absolutely authentic. You get the real Allison, which is what I what I really, really, really love about it. I have no doubt that it's the same conversation on your podcast that I would have on my podcast or that we would have in my living room. And oh, that, absolutely. Yeah, I love about that. But let me go ahead and throw it out to you for any closing thoughts, if there's anything you want to talk about or uh, grow up. I just, I, I want to say, like, I when you get into your forties as in, in, I'm sure you can read Cause I think you and I are about the same age that do you ever like, do you ever feel, have you felt like I've, I've reached it. Like I've had all the friends I'm going to have. I have my, it's sort of like out, out of fight club. I have my, yeah, so when friends. I walk in the door and I, I have say, my, I've lived a charm life. <laughs> yes. I have, you know, and in fight club, it's like, I have my Ikea, coffee table and everything made sense when I had that Ikea coffee table. Like you reach a point where you're like, I'm content. I've got everything I need. I can ride out whatever's going to happen. But the thing is, is that when I started getting into podcasting and not just as a podcaster, but a a listener, um, I never would have guessed in a million years that I would meet the people that I've met and the most amazing, interesting people that challenge me all the time to maintain an open mind and to be a little less reactive than I would otherwise be. Cause I am a reactive person. That is my worst trait. I, uh, and, and I'm constantly working on it um, because I used to be way worse than I am. Now, if people see me online and they think I'm brash and, you know, and I swear a lot or whatever, uh, just realize that the person you're seeing now is the result of a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's my, uh, pressure release valve. And, you know, now that I can't have alcohol, I'm probably going to swear a lot more. So just be Good. fucking prepared. Um, <laughs> you know, but I, I, my, my main thing, I guess, in closing is that getting to meet you 
getting to meet Brett Nallis from the prosecutors, getting to meet Bob Mata from Defense Diaries. I mean, you know, and all the fans, Jason uh, from Santa, maybe, um, you know, this circle has um, lifted me up and fortified me in ways that I never would have guessed just sitting there at a table, putting puzzles together, listening to the early episodes of the prosecutors because my friend Chris recommended them to me uh, because they covered Ray Rivera and he and I were obsessed over that case. Mm. And then he's like, Oh yeah, the, this new podcast, you know, they just talked about it. You should check it out. And I just, I was sitting there in a kind of a lull in my life and just putting together jigsaw puzzles on a cold winter day in the middle of the pandemic. <laughs> and you know, put that podcast on, not thinking about it. And then the next thing, probably about six months later or more, I'm, you know, friends with the show, a lot of, you know, and meeting everybody. And I just think it's, uh, and we're, you know, we've been family. talking. There's no What's question it? to me that we are a family. I tell yeah. him that, you know, he, he has a great podcast and mm-hmm. it's smart and it's logical and I, yeah. I appreciate that. But I told him, Brett, your gift is that you can bring people together and you yeah. have a family. Yeah. If anybody had told me that somebody with Brett's background would now be one of my best friends on this whole planet. Um, if somebody told me that <laughs> um, a year ago. Well, not a year ago, because he's been my friend for longer than that now. But uh, let's say two years ago or 2016, November 9th, 2016. If somebody had told me that, <laughs> that's all I got to say. Like, sure. You know, <laughs> I would have been like, get the hell out of my face right now. Uh, mm-hmm. There is no way I was ready to entertain anything like that. And I, I, I am grateful every day though for it because it has pulled me back from the vitriolic precipice that we are all just kind of pushed toward every fucking day in this world when we turn on the news or we open our Twitter feeds or whatever. And then I get to pull back and remind myself that there are so many good people, so Mm. many good people. And I fell into a great pocket of them and you guys let me hang out, even though I'm a complete derelict individual and i am just so thankful (laughs) no idea i'll give you a run for your money (laughs) thanks for coming on allison i really appreciate your time oh the conversation this has been like it's really been awesome and deep and more emotional than i would have ever guessed given the the topic that we have and then i'm a giant yeah that i'm a ding dong i'm queen ding dong over here and we're just you know but we're having deep discussions we can do it all we are we contain multitudes jason and i am here for it (laughs) 